You're listening to Recording to Sam, episode 101. folks welcome to according to sam this is episode 101 um they got me guys (laughs) the kong flu the china virus uh ended up uh coming down with the the virus uh, last week i was really ill uh for about a 24-hour period and then slowly uh started to recover um well, not slowly. I recovered significantly uh, that next day. I was in a, a car ride last week with uh, someone who ended up testing positive and was having symptoms. And it was, I, I said to myself, if, because uh, it was a rather long car ride and the person who I was in the car with was uh, just really having a hard time and uh, having symptoms uh, the entire car ride. And, and I said to myself, if uh, if any time, if there's any time that I'm going to get this, it's going to be um, because of this exposure uh, with this person in this car ride. And, uh, about three days later, um, it hit me like a, uh, like a rock. Um, for about 24 hours, like I said, I was out like weakness, uh, chills, um, just really no appetite. I just really wanted to do nothing but sleep for about, you know, 15, 16 hours. And then, uh, when I woke up, uh, the next day, like I said i was I took a shower felt great and um still had some residual uh effects but uh, was a lot better uh, took a at-home test and uh, the test uh, came back positive but it really just felt like a 24-hour flu I've said many times on this podcast that uh, we know that whether it was the Delta variant or any uh, future variants, that the virus gets weaker as it multiplies. And the reason that for that is because uh, the virus multiplies uh, or mutates. Sorry, the virus gets weaker as it mutates. And the reason that the virus is mutating is for survival. Uh, so they don't uh, mutate to become more deadly because if they're more deadly, they kill off their host. They become more contagious because uh, being more contagious increases uh, their chance for survival, but becoming more deadly will kill off their hosts, and that doesn't help them survive at, at all. So we've, we've known this, that the viruses, no matter what variant it is or any future variant, uh, the virus, viruses get weaker as they mutate. And the doctors in South Africa, when Omicron was uh, first discovered, they uh, said it that this is a very weak virus. And, uh, you know, I don't know why uh, everybody's been going crazy over this variant when uh, the doctors in South Africa said uh, that it was weak when they first discovered it. Um, everyone who's had the virus says that uh, it's weak. And uh, that's was my experience as well. Uh, but last week, being sick, I the week kind of got away from me. I had mentioned in my last podcast that I'm going to be doing uh, YouTube and and Rumble videos, or I'm going to be doing videos and adding that to the content that I'm going to be uh, producing in 2022, and I'll be posting those videos on YouTube and on Rumble, and you can find those uh, YouTube pages or Rumble pages by doing a search for According to Sam with the number two, and uh, find uh, those pages on YouTube and on Rumble, and like and subscribe those pages. Uh, uh, Rumble's going to kind of be my backup in case something uh, happens on YouTube, but I didn't get uh, any videos out last week because I was ill, and uh, I wanted to let you know that I've already gotten a couple of videos, new videos out that uh, I'd, I'd really like you to watch and share. Uh, so you can just do a search for according to Sam with 
with the number two uh, on YouTube. Please like and subscribe to the page. You can also go to my website and navigate to the YouTube page uh, from there. And the website is according to Sam with the number two dot com. Uh, you can also find the show archive uh, at according to Sam. Uh, find the show store uh, at according to Sam and then news. And there's a new piece uh, that I've also written on my blog there. So uh, please visit the site and uh, visit the store. Uh, go to the, to the YouTube page, like and subscribe to the page and uh, let me know what you think of that content. Uh, and you can reach out uh, to me uh, on my email or uh, my Twitter uh, account. I, my last Twitter account uh, got uh, suspended and I uh, opened a new uh, Twitter account. And that handle is Ranger in Exile, Ranger in Exile, at Ranger in Exile. And uh, that is my Twitter handle. Um, all right. So with all that, let's get into today's podcast. We're definitely going to get back into the history of the founding of the United States of America. And uh, I started telling this history, probably going back to my 90th episode. Uh, again, you can uh, visit the uh, the show archive on my website, according to sam.com, and, and go back and listen to those shows. But we started in the Roman Empire uh, telling uh, the story um, of the founding of the United States of America, going through the Roman Empire, um, through Pax Romana, through the crisis of the third century, uh, we talked about Constantine uh, uniting the empire um, under his rule, uh, the first Christian emperor making uh, the Roman Empire a Christian empire. We talked about Islam and uh, how Islam uh, spread out of the Arabian desert and started to take over uh, Persian territory. Byzantine territory, North Africa, uh, pushed into Spain, and then uh, Francia, uh, France. Uh, we talked about Charles Martel and how Charles Charles Martel uh, um, he basically got a army together. Uh, it wasn't a huge army, especially in comparison comparison to the uh, army that the Arabs had. Uh, but he staged a very str- strategic spot uh, on a hill, and he was able to repel the Arabs uh, many attacks, and they ended up fleeing back into Spain. So um, we're going to pick up where we left off in the last podcast. Um, I want to start off uh, today's podcast with this clip, and we'll get the podcast going. Uh, Take a listen. Cardinals from around the world will head to Rome to take part in a procedure known as a conclave. Their group is known as the College of Cardinals, and they will stay in the Casa di Santa Marta, a $20 million hotel-style residence inside the Vatican. And they won't leave the Vatican walls until the new pope has been selected. All the electors must be under the age of 80. That leaves 118 cardinals eligible to take part out of 210. The conclave will take place behind closed doors in the Vatican's famous Sistine Chapel. The cardinals will be completely isolated from the outside world. The first ballot may be held on the first afternoon of the conclave after morning mass. Then two more ballots in the morning and two in the afternoon until a pope is elected. Technically, any baptized male Catholic is eligible. But since the year 1378, all new popes have come from within the College of Cardinals. After each voting round, tradition dictates that the ballots are bound together and burned in a special oven erected temporarily inside the chapel. The smoke rising from the Sistine Chapel's chimney signals to the expectant faithful in St. Peter's Square the outcome of the vote. If the smoke is black, it means that no candidate has achieved the two-thirds majority needed to win, and another round of balloting will take place. If the smoke is white, a new pope has been elected. A senior cardinal then takes to the balcony of St. Peter's Basilica to announce, in Latin, I announce to you news of great joy. We have a pope. All right, so that's the papal conclave, the Cardinals uh, College of Cardinals. And uh, what they just laid out was the system of electing a new 
uh, Pope. I've actually uh, lived through the election of three uh, new popes and, and remember distinctively this process um, when Benedict was elected and then when Benedict uh, retired, uh, the current Pope Francis was elected through this process. The process um, <clears throat> of the papal conclave um, is a process that has been in place for over a thousand years. Um, and it is a process that has been repeated many times. Um, the system of cardinals, uh, was set up about sometime in the ninth century. Um, but this isn't the way that it has always been. This is not the way that popes have always been elected. Yes, it's, this has been the process for a very long time, but in the 7th and 8th century, uh, a period of time that we're going to talk about today, popes were not elected this way, uh, particularly the early part of the 8th century. Things started to change in the later part of the 8th century, but uh, the 7th and 8th century are still very well uh, classical uh, periods. We have it. It's kind of like you're getting into uh, the Middle Ages and uh, the medieval period, but you're, it, it's still uh, you're still talking about classical Europe in the seventh and eighth century. It's it's late classical period. Um, early Middle Ages, and the the two periods are kind of like uh, starting to blend into one another. But um, in the seventh century, the um, emperor in Byzantium still had a lot of control over what was going on in Western Europe, um, even though um, the Byzantine emperor didn't have his armies there, um, not large armies. By this time, the barbarians had, had come in and, uh, you had the Ostrogoths, uh, who had settled, uh, the Lombards, the Franks, of course. And that was the real power in, in Europe. But these barbarian groups, they, uh, paid tribute to the Byzantine emperor. The Pope paid taxes to the Byzantine emperor and the Byzantine emperor had influence over the election of Pope. The way that popes were elected in the seventh and eighth century, uh, you know, very uh, rich aristocratic families within Rome uh, would get together and elect a new pope if a pope, or if or when, a pope died. Um, they would elect a new pope. But after this pope was elected by these aristocrats in Rome, uh, they had to send word back to Byzantium, to the east, to the capital at Constantinople. And they had to get uh, the approval of the court in Constantinople for this new elected pope to then be consecrated, and then uh, the Pope is consecrated, and he becomes a uh, the new Pope. This is very important that you understand this. That, and if you don't remember me telling you that uh, the Patriarch of Constantinople is essentially the Pope in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, the Patriarch of Constant Constantinople claims to be seating on, sitting on the same uh, seat as the Apostle Andrew, just like uh, the Bishop of Rome claims to be sitting on the same seat as the Apostle Peter. Um, a direct Align to the apostles uh, is what is claimed by the patriarch of Constantinople, just like the Pope. So when the uh, aristocrats in Rome elect a new Pope and then send word back to the East that this new Pope was elected and then they're waiting for approval, uh, the emperor is approving this new candidate for Pope, but he's approving it you know, with the council of the patriarch of Constantinople. Very important, because at this time, 
the Pope was subordinate to the Patriarch of Constantinople. Let me say that again. At this time, the Pope was subordinate to the Patriarch of Constantinople because the head of the church was essentially the emperor in uh, in Byzantium. And the emperor in Byzantium, he had say-so over who becomes Patriarch of Constantinople, and he had say-so over who becomes the uh, new pope in Rome. That's the way the pope was uh, elected and consecrated before uh, the middle part of the 8th century when things started to change. Now, uh, give you an example of what happens if a pope decided to be consecrated without getting the approval of the emperor and the patriarch of Constantinople in the east, what would happen to such a person? We have Martin I, Pope Martin I, and here's a clip about what happened to Martin I. As soon as he was elected pope in 649, Martin I was on a collision course with Emperor Constans, who insisted he had full authority to settle church disputes and theological questions, as well as political issues. One of Martin's first acts of independence was having himself consecrated without the overt approval of the emperor. Next, Martin called a council in Rome to confront and condemn a popular heresy, which held that Jesus had no human will. Constans was enraged and had Pope Martin arrested. Already in poor health, Martin was forced onto a ship to Constantinople. There he was imprisoned and tortured. He was finally condemned to death, but saved from execution following an appeal by the Bishop of Constantinople. Instead, Martin was exiled to Russia. Eighteen months later, in 655, he died from starvation and ill treatment. So, um, between 678 um, and 752, um, uh, the number of popes that were elected and consecrated from the East um, greatly outnumbered those who were from the West, uh, either Greek or Syrian. 11 out of 13 uh, popes in that time that I said, 678 and uh, 752, a period of 64 years, there was 13 popes, and 11 of them were either Greek or Syrian from the East. Um, so what started to change in the beginning of the 8th century to change this policy and weaken the influence of the uh, Byzantine emperor um, over the, uh, the pope? And what changed was Islam. <laughs> and if you remember, Islam started to uh, come about in the middle of the 7th century. Uh, Muhammad died, and then it spread out of uh, the Arabian desert, uh, started taking over uh, land to the east and to the west rapidly. Um, we talked about all that. And the, the Muslims were taking... Uh, large swaths of land that had previously belonged to the Byzantine Empire, particularly in Anatolia. Um, and a new emperor came to the throne, Emperor Leo III, in the early part of the 8th century, and he sought to regain uh, some of those lands, uh, particularly in Anatolia, uh, back from uh, the Islamic hordes. So, uh he has a couple of plans. Uh, his first plan is to raise taxes um, on all of the people who were paying him taxes and tribute and uh, demand more. And that meant that he demanded more taxes uh, from the Pope. Um, but at this time, the only reason that the Pope was really um, continuing to pay taxes to the Byzantine emperor and, and continuing to seek approval 
uh, for uh, papal consecration. The only reason that that the people in Rome were even playing ball uh, was with the Byzantine emperor because they expected the Byzantine emperor to protect them, uh, protect them from uh, you know the Ostrogoths, the Lombards, um, anyone who sought to do the Pope uh, harm. The the emperor in the east had traditionally been the protector of the pope. But uh, because the eastern empire was bogged down fighting uh, the Muslims, they were also uh, fighting uh, the Slavs that were coming down uh, and taking over their lands uh, to, uh, to the east, I mean to the west. Um, and they were engaged in a lot of battles on the eastern part of the empire where they couldn't really uh, focus uh, and pay much attention to the west, let alone uh, pay attention uh, to protecting the papacy. So the papacy is like, you know, why uh, are we continuing to pay taxes uh, to the eastern part of the empire? Why are we continuing to seek their approval uh, for the concert? consecration of our uh popes um and they just decided when leo decided that he was going to raise taxes on the papacy um the papacy decided we're not paying taxes anymore so uh that's how it starts uh this rift between the eastern empire and the papacy uh the papacy basically just says you know we're not paying taxes anymore we're not uh going to be uh paying tribute to the Eastern Emperor anymore because he's not keeping up his end of the bargain. He's not protecting us. And what are we getting for this tax uh, money that we're sending and uh, this tribute that we're paying? And then Leo does something else. And this is also encouraged by his fight with the Muslim hordes. He institutes a policy of iconoclasm. And what iconoclasm is, is uh, the idea of venerating icons. Now, venerating icons and images of Jesus and the Virgin Mary um, and statues and uh, graven images is, is what uh, they were uh, referred to. And the Muslims had a strict policy still to this day. You can't uh, draw a picture of Muhammad, can't draw a picture of God uh, for for uh, for Islam. Uh, mosaics is how they basically um, the art, the mosaics are the art that um, the Muslims use to basically worship and you see mosaics all over the Muslim world, but you don't see any images of Jesus. You don't see any images of uh, Muhammad. You don't see any images of any type of deity. And this comes from the Ten Commandments, and uh, Muslims were strict uh, to this. So Leo, he starts to think to himself, well, how are the Muslims able to conquer all of these regions that they've conquered in uh, such a, a rapid amount of time and, and, and take over North Africa, take over uh, Spain, take over uh, Persia, uh, take over Anatolia and all these Byzantine. How are they able to do this? And Leo came up with well, it wasn't Leo. The there was uh, iconoclasts uh, that were that preceded Leo, but Leo starts to imp implement the policy. But uh, these people who believed that uh, that that destroying images and stopping the veneration of images uh, that was going to uh, garner favor from God. And, um, that was going to, um, to, um, help them to withstand the assault from the Muslims. The reason why the, that they were losing land and the reason why the Muslims were, uh, winning is because they were not venerating icons and idols and icons and idols and uh, relics were really important early on uh, to Roman Catholicism. And when Leo institutes this policy of iconoclasm, uh, the Pope in Rome also, again, uh, says, no, 
We are not going to destroy icons. We're not going to destroy uh, the statues. We're not going to destroy uh, these images. Um, and then when the Pope does that, uh, Leo uh, sends a military force to the southern part of Italy, and uh, he basically seizes all of the churches and lands uh, that were uh, basically run by the Pope at this time. He seizes all those lands and churches, and then he puts them under the control of the Patriarch of Constantinople. Uh, take a listen to this clip about iconoclasm, and then we will uh, continue. No graven images. That's what God told Moses on the mountain. The God of Israel was too big to fit into a temple, too great to be reduced to a statue. So the Israelites were forbidden to even try to make any image of God. But did anything change when God became flesh? Was an image of Jesus really an image of God? Early in the church's history, these questions didn't really come up. But in the 4th century, when persecution of Christians ended, paintings of Jesus became more common. Now, by the middle of the 6th century, religious icons were a regular part of Christian worship in many places. But all that began to change in the early 7th century. In the year 613, a merchant from the Arabian city of Mecca claimed that the angel Gabriel gave him a message. Now, this man was on a mission from God, or so he thought. The merchant's name was Muhammad. His followers became known as Muslims, and in the year 630, he rocked the Kaaba, which was a pagan place of worship in Mecca, when he carried out all the images, destroyed the statues of the Arab gods. Now, from that point on, many Muslims saw the use of religious images as nothing less than idol worship. Now, during the 600s and the 700s, Muslim armies swept across Africa and Asia. They took Syria, Egypt, North Africa, Crete. They even made it partway across Spain before a general named Charles the Hammer stopped them at the Battle of Tours. Now, in many cases, the Muslims allowed greater religious freedom than Christians had. But still, their negative outlook on images had a big impact. Around the year 726, the emperor of the Eastern Empire said icons were no longer part of Christian worship, and this split Christians into two groups, the icon smashers, or iconoclasts, and the icon kissers. So after um, Leo tries to uh, force the Western church um, under the Pope to smash icons and to... uh, institute this policy of iconoclasm. Uh, the Pope says no. Um, and the emperor in the East is in a different position in the beginning of the eighth century than he was in the middle of the seventh uh, century when he arrested uh, Pope Martin and, and had him forced back to uh, Constantinople to be tried. Uh, the emperor wasn't in a position to be uh, doing this in the eighth century, again, because of these threats uh, to him on his eastern front, uh, the Muslims, the Slavs, um, there was no uh, real threat to the Pope uh, refusing to comply with the emperor at this point. And uh, the Pope had already started to negotiate with the Lombards, who were the real military power in northern Italy at this time. And in 728, a uh, Lombard king, uh, Lutpran, uh, he gave the first donation of land uh, to the papacy that was the first plot of land that the papacy had ever owned. And I mean, at this time, there was no Vatican. There were no papal states or no papal uh, lands, certainly not uh, the way that papal lands were understood during uh, the medieval period. And as you're going to, to see, there was none of that. The papacy had their small cathedrals uh, in Rome. And basically, that's all that they really controlled until this Lombard king, uh, Lutpran, uh, donates this plot of land to the papacy in 728. And this donation, the, the key word is donation, uh, the donation of Sotri was the very first plot of land that was donated and given to the papacy as its own. Um, even the the Eastern Emperor hadn't donated a plot of land to the church uh, that was 
part of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, this was not done until this Lombard uh, king did this. So the uh, the papacy, they were making negotiations and, and creating these uh, relationships with the Lombards. Uh, but the Lombards, they had had a series of kings that had been Arians. Uh, who were hostile uh, to the papacy. Uh, many of the people in the kingdom of uh, Lombardia, uh, they were pagans. They were Arians. <laughs> I mean, you had some Catholics as well, but not they weren't, weren't all Catholics. And, and who knows, when uh, Lutpret uh, died uh, and a new Lombard king came to power who happened to be pagan or Aryan. Uh, you know, this land that was donated to the papacy could have easily just been taken from the pap- taken back from the papacy by the Lombards. If, uh, if a, a new Lombard king came along and decided, uh, that that's what they wanted to do. Even though what I'm telling you is that even though the papacy is making these new alliances in the West with these military powers, the Lombards, uh, it wasn't a secure uh, agreement. It wasn't a secure uh, relationship that the papacy was going to be able to count on uh, for years and years uh, to come. So the papacy starts to look around at who can he make a relationship with and create an alliance that would last for a long period of time, for years and years, that uh, that the papacy had leverage over because the papacy had no leverage over the Lombards, then the agreements that they were making, uh, they were agreements that uh, that helped uh, each side. But again, like I was saying, if uh, a new uh, king that didn't respect uh, those allegiances uh, came along and wanted to uh, renege on them, I mean, there was nothing stopping the Lombards. But... The Pope could get that type of leverage with the Carolingians because the Carolingians, they had something that the papacy wanted, and that was the protection and uh, the uh, donation of papal states. That's what the papacy wanted. But the Carolingians wanted, they wanted to be kings because they were not kings in France. The Merovingians were kings. The Merovingians had been the kings uh, since Clovis. Uh, but the mayor of the palace, the Carolingians were the mayor of the palace, which were basically the, um, the hand to the king. And they wielded all of the power and they wanted to be kings. Ever since Charles Martel uh, won the uh, the Battle of Tours and defeated the Muslims and increased his notoriety, he became more popular, more powerful, but he didn't have the title of king. So the Pope could make the Carolingians kings, <laughs> and the Carolingians could protect the Pope. Take a listen. Charles Martel died in 741. And he left behind two sons, one named Carloman, who would retire to a monastery in 747, and another a figure of great importance in Carolingian history named Pepin III, or Pepin the Short, who would not die until 768. The death of Charles Martel was almost a replay of the death of Pepin II. There are revolts against the Carolingians that need to be put down, but Pepin the Short succeeds in in reimposing Carolingian control over Neustria, and he spends much of the 760s traveling to the south of Francia and consolidating Carolingian control there. But Pepin the Short was going to be important, not so much because he manages to maintain the status quo that Charles Martel had established. He's important because he took the Carolingian dynasty into some new directions, and indeed he was going to depose the last Merovingian king of the Franks. In 750, Pepin the Short sent ambassadors to Rome, to the Pope, and asked the Pope whether it was right for the Merovingians to remain king of the Franks, because they hadn't been doing anything for a long time. The Carolingians had been running the Frankish government, 
we were the ones who won the Battle of Poitiers, shouldn't we hold not just the substance of power, but the royal title as well? Papacy decided to accede to this request and gave the Carolingians permission to depose the Merovingian dynasty. Carolingians sent the last Merovingian king into retirement in a monastery in 751, and this alliance that is formed between the papacy and the Carolingians is cemented in 754 when a pope travels north of the Alps to anoint Pepin the Short as king of the Franks and to give his approval to what had taken place. It is worth noting that the voyage of the pope north of the Alps in 754 is the first time that any pope had ever traveled north of the Alps to, and this represents a certain shift in the papacy's mental world as it is starting to pay less attention to the eastern end of the Mediterranean and more to northern continental Europe. The papacy did not agree to the coup d'etat out of oh, mere disinterest. There was a deal cut. In return for legitimating the overthrow of the Merovingian dynasty, an overthrow whose only justification was really the fact that the Pope had said it was okay. That's it. <laughs> That's the only thing that justified what the Carolingians did in deposing the Merovingian, uh, last Merovingian king. The only thing that justified it is because God said that it was okay, and God gave his, um, his blessing to the deposing of the Merovingian king. God did that through the Pope. You understand what's what's going on here, because this is going to set the stage for all of for the next twelve hundred years of Europe. This is what what this alliance is going to set the stage for the Renaissance, the Reformation, <laughs> everything that happens. This alliance between the Pope and the Carolingian king is going to set the stage for everything that happens in Europe for over the next thousand years. The Carolingians were going to have to perform certain favors for the papacy. They're going to have to assume protection of the papacy from the Lombards. And in 755 and 756, Pepin the Short leads the Frankish army south of the Alps to attack the Lombards, who had indeed been stealing papal property. Interestingly, there appears to have been a great deal of resistance among Frankish aristocrats to this intervention south of the Alps. There was no real tradition of Franks traveling to Italy and meddling in Italian affairs. But Pepin the Short browbeat Frankish aristocrats into participating in these expeditions, and he was successful in his attacks against the Lombards in 755 and 756. He forces the Lombards to return to the papacy, the property they had uh, taken from the papacy. And the deal that has been struck between the Carolingians and the papacy is working out well for all parties involved. The expeditions of the Franks south of the Alps in 755 and 756 represent as much of a turning point in early medieval history as the voyage of the Pope north of the Alps in 754. There is a long history of peoples from the Mediterranean traveling to northern continental Europe and imposing their will there. That is what the Romans had done. But now the inhabitants of northern continental Europe are starting to travel to the Mediterranean and impose their will. And this shifting of the political center of gravity in Europe northward towards what is today northern France and northwestern Germany indicates that we are starting to take some very large steps out of the ancient world and into the Middle Ages. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so Pippin basically seizes all this land from the Lombards, uh, you know, poses uh, the Frankish will on the Lombards, and uh, he takes this land and then he gives it to the papacy. 
Um, and this is called the donation of Pippin. Uh, you remember we were just talking about the donation of uh, Sotri uh, that the Lombard king had donated to the papacy. Um, this idea of a donation of land is uh, is not only uh, something that the Lombards did, but uh, Pippin, when he seizes this land from the Lombards, he gives it as a donation uh, to the papacy. Very important, this word donation, because we have the donation of uh, Sotri, we have the donation of Pippin, and in the next episode, when we talk about Charlemagne, we're going to talk about the donation of Constantine. But this donation of Pippin, it basically establishes the very first papal states, the papal states that we understand from the medieval period, uh, the papal states that basically gives the papacy its temporal power. It's not just the papacy is not just a spiritual uh, entity, um, a, a religious entity. Now it is a temporal power because it has uh, all of this vast land uh, that was given uh, to the papacy by Pippin. Uh, take a listen to this clip. The donation of Pepin in 756 provided a legal basis for the erection of the Papal States, which extended the temporal rule of the popes beyond the Duchy of Rome. In 751, Eistulf, king of the Lombards, conquered what remained of the Exarchate of Ravenna, the last vestige of the Roman Empire in northern Italy. In 752, Eistulf demanded the submission of Rome and a tribute of one gold solidus per capita. Eistolf is one of these Lombard kings that came um, came after um, Luke Pred. Um, that I was saying that you know Luke Pred is the one who did uh, the donation of a sultry, and I was saying you know another uh, Lombard king could come along later and you know basically renege on the donation of sultry and uh Eistof is one of those emperors who comes after Ludprad and uh, he basically has a different point of view he does not abide by the agreement that Ludprad made with Pope Gregory Eistolf demanded the submission of Rome and a tribute of 1 gold solidus per capita Pope Stephen II and a Roman envoy, John the Silentieri, tried by negotiations and bribes to convince Eistulf to back down. When this failed, Stephen sent envoys to Pepin the Short, King of the Franks, with a letter requesting his support and the provision of a Frankish escort so that Stephen could go to Pepin to confer. At the time, the Franks were on good terms with the Lombards. In 753, John the Silentieri returned to Rome with an imperial order that Pope Stephen accompany him to meet Eistulf in the Lombard capital of Pavia. The Pope duly requested and received a safe conduct from the Lombards. With the Frankish envoys who had by then arrived, the Pope and the imperial envoy set out for Pavia on the 14th of October 753. The Roman magnates did not accompany them past the border. At Pavia, Eistulf denied the requests of Stephen and John to return the conquered exarchate to the empire, but he did not prevent Stephen from continuing with the Frankish envoys to the court of Pepin. John the Silentieri did not accompany them. This was the first time a pope had crossed the Alps. Pope Stephen met Pepin the Short, who had been crowned at Soissons with Zachary. Roman Catholic tradition asserts that it was then and there that Pepin executed in writing a promise to convey to the papacy certain territories that were going to be wrested from the Lombards. No original document has been preserved, but later 8th-century sources quote from it and the Fragmentum Fantusianum probably relied on it. So it's very interesting. They say that this document. Okay, so we just um, heard the previous uh, clip. Uh, the first time that the Pope had gone across uh, the Swiss Alp into uh, France and crowned uh, Pippin uh, to be the new king after he had deposed the Merovingian king, and they make a deal. Is what this clip's saying is that they make a deal at that time that um, when uh, Pippin comes back across 
the Alps uh, to basically uh, to defend the papacy again against the uh, Lombard king who was you know demanding all of this tribute and and taking the land that had been donated uh, to the papacy that Pippin makes at this time uh, an agreement that when we come back across the Alps and seize this land from uh, the Lombards, then we're going to donate it uh, to the papacy. And uh, that's where the donation of uh, Pippin uh, came from. But as this clip says, there was never any formal document that uh, that you could point to that uh, Pippin signed no agreement uh, that was on paper or anything like that. It was just basically the word of the papacy saying that, hey, uh, now this land uh, belongs to us and it was donated uh, to us by Pippin the Short. Eighth century I don't doubt that Pippin did this uh, because, you know, I mean, there's no evidence that any uh, Carolingian ever said that, no, we didn't donate this land uh, to the papacy. But was it the Frank's land to even donate to the <laughs> to the papacy? And uh, Charlemagne, who's going to Charlemagne is Pippin's uh, son. Charlemagne's going to become king after uh, Pippin dies, and he's going to reaffirm these donations, and he's going to even add uh, a little bit more. But uh, it's there was no no formal document, and even if there was a document, the papal states were not the Franks to donate to uh, the Pope in the first place. All right, so from it, and the Fragmentum Fantusianum probably relied on it. On 28 July 754 Pope Stephen anointed Pepin, as well as his two sons Charles and Carloman, at Saint Denis in a memorable ceremony that was recalled in coronation rites of French kings until the end of the ancient regime in 1792. Very important that what this clip just says. This, this coronation of uh, the Pope uh, coronating the King of the Franks, this, this uh, ceremony that took place with uh, Pippin the Short and his uh, two sons. Um, this ceremony, the same ceremony, is going to continue for all French kings until the end of the French Revolution in the 18th century. <laughs> this is the same ceremony. This is where divine right of kings comes from as his two sons Charles and Carloman, at Saint Denis in a memorable ceremony that was recalled in coronation rites of French kings until the end of the ancient regime in 1792. In return, in 756, Pepin and his Frankish army forced the Lombard king to surrender his conquests, and Pepin officially conferred upon the Pope the territories belonging to Ravenna, even cities such as Forli with their hinterlands, laying the deeds and keys to the cities upon the tomb of Saint Peter, according to traditional later accounts. The gift included Lombard conquests in the Romagna and in the Duchy of Spoleto and Benevento, and the Pentapolis in the Marche the five cities of Rimini, Pissarro, Fano, Senegalia and Ancona. The donations made the Pope for the first time as a temporal ruler. This strip of territory extended diagonally across Italy from the Tyrrhenian to the Adriatic. Pepin confirmed his donations in Rome in 756, and in 774 his son Charlemagne again confirmed and reasserted the donation. All right, so we're going to talk about uh, that and Charlemagne in the next episode, how Charlemagne reaffirms uh, those donations and actually increases them by basically giving credence to this document. Uh, this time we do actually have a, a document when we start talking about the donation of, of Constantine. And uh, like I said, we'll talk about that in the next episode. But it's very important that you understand uh, all of this history. What does this history have to do with the founding of the United States of America? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> If you only knew, but you will know if you continue listening uh, to this podcast and I'll explain to you what all of this has to do with the founding of the United States of America. You know, the uh, the papacy and the pope, as we understand it today, uh, is not the papacy 
and uh, the Pope uh, as it would have been understood in the late seventh century, early eighth century. But because of this uh, agreement that the Pope makes with the Carolingians and to depose the last Merovingian king and and make the Carolingians king. And uh, this agreement that the Carolingians make with the Pope to uh, donate this vast uh, swaths of land uh, to the Pope to create the papal states and the temporal power of the uh, papacy, this marriage of church and state um, is going to basically um, it's going to be the foundation of medieval Europe. And uh, this is not the, and a lot of people like to uh, say that this is the, the first uh, relationship of church and state. And uh, you know, this marriage and agreement between uh, the papacy and the Carolingians are the beginning of church and state. Nothing could be more ridiculous. Uh, Constantine married church and state in the fourth century when he embraced Christianity and made the Roman empire empire a christian empire all of the emperors in the uh eastern part of the empire uh they were married to church and uh, there was a marriage of church and state between the emperors in the east and the patriarch of constantinople the emperors in the east had um you know uh they you know, put their input in on uh, doctrinal uh, disputes and um, all kinds of uh, things that uh, would have and should have been outside of the uh, purview of the emperor, uh, things that were religious and, and spiritual things. But the emperor was uh, right there involved in these things and wielding influence over these religious and spiritual matters. So uh, church and state didn't start with the uh, relationship of the papacy and the Carolingians. But what the papacy and the Carolingians were going to do with this marriage of per of church and state and the uh, divine right of kings to rule by uh, that is given to these kings by uh, the Pope and the Pope being, you know, representing God that, that the reason that these Kings have the divine right to rule is because the Pope says that they have a divine right to rule and the Pope represents God. This is the essence. This is the foundation of everything that happens in medieval Europe. Um, you know, the Pope and the uh, European monarchs are going to battle each other for uh, control and power over the church and, and the spiritual and, and religious uh, things that uh, that frankly should be uh, something that, you know, that the monarchs don't have any influence over. But as just like the uh, emperors, uh, Byzantine emperors had influence over uh, the religious and spiritual matters, these uh, medieval monarchs are also going to have uh, influence over uh, spiritual matters. And, and basically, they're going to be the power, not only the power of the state, but also the power of uh, the church and the the popes are, are going to, uh, you know, be battling with these monarchs to uh, exercise some form of uh, of autonomy, uh, you know, and and be able to uh, dictate matters of the church without the input of of these kings, but it's a Faustian bargain that is made uh, by the Pope when he makes this agreement with the Carolingians because uh, it's an agreement that the papacy is going to get the short end of the stick. Uh, and, and you're going to see that as we go uh, through this history. There's nothing more... Uh, blatant and uh, there is no more of a blatant example of this power that the 
uh, European monarchs have over the papacy uh, than the Avion uh, papacy. And the Avion papacy, also referred to as the Babylonian captivity, was a period of time where the papacy uh, was not even stationed in Rome, that the French king had brought the papacy to Avion, France, and the papacy was basically uh, administering uh, papal power from Avignon, France, as a tool of the French king. And, you know, it's, it, it's so weird because think about this, that the, the pope is not just titled pope. He's, he's, his title is also Bishop of Rome. Uh, he has to be in Rome because he's the Bishop of Rome. But during the Avion papacy, the Babylonian captivity, the papacy was in Avion. And uh, the way that the papacy goes from Avion back to Rome and, and what happens there, I can't wait to tell you that story, the uh, Council of Constance and um, everything that happens uh, there. But, but this this relationship between these, the first the Carolingians and then this relationship also uh, is is expanded to other monarchs throughout uh, Europe. Uh, this relationship with the papacy and the monarchs uh, leads to, uh, you know, spiritual corruption, uh, spiritual uh, misuse. Um, it actually uh, leads to, uh, you know, the, the feudal uh, period. Um, you really can't understand the Declaration of Independence that uh, the American colonists write to King George establishing our independence from uh, the British monarch. If you don't understand all of this history and the divine right of, uh, of kings to rule and, and where it comes from in this uh, marriage that had taken place between the papacy and the French king, you, you can't understand we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That makes no sense to you unless you understand uh, this relationship between the papacy uh, and the the European monarchs. Um well, we're going to talk more about this in the next episode. We're going to talk about Charlemagne because Charlemagne is the greatest of the European monarchs. He establishes uh, everything that becomes medieval uh, Europe. And uh, like I said, we'll talk about him in the next episode. Uh, please visit the website and uh, you can navigate to my YouTube page and, and check out my YouTube videos uh, from the website. You can also uh, listen to past podcasts and uh, find the show archive there. Uh, you can read my blog. Uh, that website is at according to Sam with the number two dot com. Uh, you can also uh, find the link to the store there. Please pick up a T-shirt or a bumper sticker or a mug. Uh, help me out. Support the podcast. Uh, please share the podcast. Share the YouTube videos. Like and subscribe the the YouTube to the YouTube page and uh, I'll be back with uh, the next episode next Tuesday we're going to talk about Charlemagne and uh, we're going to talk about the um, the foundations of medieval Europe how um, it was established by Charlemagne we'll talk about uh, the donation of Constantine the Carolingian Renaissance there is so much history uh, still to talk about and it's going to give you a greater appreciation for the United States of America when I am done. Um, so please be here. Please uh, share the podcast and uh, we will see you guys next Tuesday. Um, I hope you've enjoyed everything that I've been presenting to you and uh, I have a lot more to share. Um, we'll see you guys next week.